Both Barley and Niffler need high-powered dog food to help them out in the field. Whenever I live somewhere with refrigeration, I love feeding them Nom Nom Now. Niffler can be a slow and picky eater, and he actually dances and whines when he knows Nom Nom Now is coming out of the fridge, and then licks the bowl clean. Nom Nom's food is full of fresh proteins that your dog loves, and the vitamins and nutrients they need to thrive. You can actually see proteins in vegetables like beef, chicken, pork, peas, carrots, kale, and more. When you sign up for Nom Nom Now, you share information on your dog's age, breed, weight, allergies, food preferences, and, importantly, their activity level. Then they'll tailor specially made blends and serving sizes to your dogs, which are delivered in a huge, exciting refrigerated box. If you're ready to make the switch to fresh, you can order Nom Nom Now today by going to zen.ai slash canine conservationists one and use the offer code canine conservationists all one word to get 50 percent off your first order plus free shipping so again that is zen.ai slash canine conservationists number one and use the offer code canine conservationists at checkout you'll get 50 percent off and of course nom nom comes with a money money back guarantee if your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. I'm just dropping in before this episode to let you know that there will be a final wrap-up Q&A episode all about our discrimination mini-series. Um, firstly, I'm kind of waiting for some more questions to roll in, so feel free to email us, DM us on Facebook or Instagram, or find me on Twitter if you've got any questions. Um, we also have a huge backlog of really exciting episodes that we're going to take advantage of while I work through some personal stuff. Barley has had some health issues. I am starting a PhD. I'm the maid of honor in a wedding, um, and we have some field work coming up. So the final episode in our discrimination mini series will be coming out. We just need you all to send me some questions and I need to get my life in order to record it. So thank you so much for your patience. And in the meantime, enjoy some of these very exciting backlog episodes that we have prepared for you. Bye. Hello and welcome to the Canine Conservationist podcast, where we're positively obsessed with all things conservation detection dog. Join us each week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I'm one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I'm here with Nathan Alexander and Jamie Kuhn to talk about a really exciting paper that they published earlier this year, um, all about safety and inclusion for um, queer ecologists, particularly when it comes to fieldwork. Because this entire um, podcast is going to be a science highlight, we don't have a specific science highlight up front, and we are just going to dive right in with introductions. So we'll start out with Nathan, and then Jamie, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, what your work looks like right now, and um, how you came together on this paper. Uh, hi, I'm Nathan Alexander, um, he, him pronouns. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate at University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, currently uh, researching predominantly species distribution modeling and genetics of gophers. Um, I did my master's at Humboldt State and my bachelor's at Oregon State, although I'm originally from Southern Illinois. Uh, my career has been a lot of field work early on before going back to higher education. And uh, I met Jamie at University of Illinois. Uh, so I'm Jamie. I use she or they pronouns. I'm an assistant professor at Earlham College in Indiana. I did my PhD work with Nathan at the University of Illinois and got my bachelor's from Central Michigan University. But most of my research is on grasslands out in Iowa, where I study the relationships between people and nature, 
with a special focus on grassland birds uh, and how we can support the conservation of that declining avian group. Uh, and Nathan and I met during grad school, uh, but have continued on doing lots of really cool projects together after I graduated. And Nathan is soon to graduate. So I'm really excited to talk more about that today. Yeah, definitely. So why don't we dive right into it with, you know, what are some of the unique barriers that LGBTQ folks may face when it comes to ecology and fieldwork? Um, you know, what what even spurred, I imagine that is part of what spurred the um, spurred this paper forward for you both. Yeah. And so one of the things that spurred this paper was the realization that both of us had previous experiences in the field of both being unsafe or having to navigate personal identities in order to effectively retain employment and be accepted within these kind of close-knit fieldwork groups. Um, both of us were at a place in our career where we had a certain level of job stability and we wanted to ensure that there was this broader message to upcoming lgbtq field workers or those that might feel like they don't fit in the standard mold of what a field worker looks like and we really wanted to push against that narrative and create a document and a discourse around how there is inclusion and there are opportunities uh, specifically for lgbtq field workers um, during my master's, I actually had a student ask if they had to switch majors because they were queer. And there have been several other instances of people not feeling like this is a welcoming field. Similar to Nathan, a lot of my interest in writing this paper related to mentorship of students. Once I got my assistant professor job, I was really mentoring a lot of students. They were going into the field and they were having negative experiences due to their queer or trans identities. Uh, and I realized that a lot of the way that I had always shared information about safety in the field is by chatting with my queer and trans friends, um, with Nathan, and we would share strategies with each other. And I realized, and Nathan and I realized together, that it would be useful to write all of it down and put it in the literature, because not everyone has access to queer and trans mentorship where they're working. And so we thought if we could get this information out there, get it citable, then we could get it out into the general knowledge and kind of take this conversation out of hidden corners and put it out in the open. Yeah, that, I mean, that is exactly where this, how, how we came to find this paper and um, why we're all here today. So, you know, there were a couple of keywords that came up for me as I was starting to read through this paper that maybe we can start out by exploring and defining and talking about how they're really important for, for queer folks in the field. So the first one that came up for me was identity disclosure. Would either of you feel comfortable defining what that is and talking about how that may be a barrier for someone who's trying to be a field ecologist or, you know, succeeding as a field ecologist, but struggling in, um, you know, safety and inclusion ways? Sure, I, I can speak a little bit on that. So with identity disclosure, one of the common discussions around LGBTQ identities is that it's not something that's immediately noticeable. And so uh, it often relies on individuals to disclose if they are LGBTQ or not. Um, and with this, there's always a personal risk when and assessment when deciding when to disclose and when not to. 
And so there have been instances when I've been on field crews where I have been out. Um, I've talked about experiences. I've gone to prides and neighboring cities with field crew members. But there's also been experiences where I have not been out to a field crew where due to the kind of tone or the discourse that I'm observing around me, I choose that it's safer for me to not be out. And while I tend to be able to navigate that as a cis male, I'm, it's, it's more difficult to hide identities or have ownership over your own identity if it's more visibly present. And so there's increased safety risks depending on how somebody presents or how somebody lives their life. For me, I think uh, one thing I have to keep in mind as a mentor of students, um, and Nathan has talked a lot with me about this and helped me understand that identity disclosure can be variable even within like a given time period. So I may have a student or I may decide myself to be out within my field team, but within the community contexts, it may not be as safe to be out. So when I'm doing extremely rural field work, I do not want my field team to be using they, them pronouns for me. Um, But within my team, that's totally acceptable. And that risk really ramps up uh, if you are a person who belongs to identity groups that are more at risk, particularly trans individuals and people of color. Um, And so there can be a lot of risk in decision-making that you have to do and your decisions may also be limited by society. So identity disclosure is really complicated and it's something that we believe all fieldwork teams need to talk about and be on the same page about. Uh, Just a quick thing as well to kind of follow up with that is I think it's also important that if you're leading a field crew or managing a field crew, you don't come from a place with the assumption that your crew is going to disclose their identities to you and you need to create a system that will protect them regardless of that disclosure. Yeah, Nathan, I'm really glad you brought that back in um, because I think it is so important to not just identify these things, but um, you know, let people know what they can do if um, if they're in a leadership or coworker position, even if they're not, um, you know, directly a member of one of these groups. And I know, you know, I think I've talked about this previously on the podcast, but as far as identity disclosure goes, I've, you know, we've had to in several different international experiences, in particular you know, have minor conversations within teams that I'm part of as far as how to talk about someone's, um, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend in either gender neutral language or if actually um, misgendering the person's partner is the safest thing to do, um, particularly in the context of international fieldwork. But that also can certainly be a factor staying within the U.S. depending on your situation, as, as you mentioned there, Jamie. Um, so one of the next things that I had kind of highlighted as something that we can define and pick apart right away is kind of cis and heteronormativity and how that may relate to uh, the experience of queer folks in the field of ecology. So what what does cis, cis uh, and heteronormativity have to do with ecology uh, and fieldwork? So this is one of the benefits of this paper as well, where we brought in outside experts. So in addition to us who are field ecologists on the paper, we also have uh, experts in psychology and education and um, black queer literature. So with cis heteronormativity, the concept is essentially that 
social expectations and social uh, obligations that are created through these communities that prioritize um, non-LGBTQ people create additional stressors and additional barriers for uh, LGBTQ people. And importantly, these tend to be exacerbated in rural areas where there's more tight-knit communities. Um, if you're doing field work, you're there briefly or just for a summer. And with this kind of increased social pressure to conform to heteronormative or uh, straight expectations. There can be added mental health burdens, a uh, lack of community for LGBTQ people. And, you know, growing up in Southern Illinois, um, even though it was like two hours, two and a half hours away, it was very common for people within the LGBTQ community down in Southern Illinois to drive to St. Louis for an evening or something like that, just to be able to be around other queer people. Uh, sorry, Nathan. So uh, for me, cis heteronormativity or the expectation that you are heterosexual or cisgender uh, was had a really strong impact on me because I generally, if you look from the outside, conform to expectations. Uh, and for me, it was painful when people would make assumptions about my identity based on how I looked or how I acted or the apparent gender of my partner. Uh, and that painfulness is comes from a feeling of invisibility and not being seen. Uh, and while it's a privilege to be able to not disclose my identity if I don't want to, there's also um, cost to that feelings uh, to those feelings of erasure uh, that come with that. And on field teams, you may think, okay, you're in a work environment. How do identities come into this? But honestly heteronormativity and cisnormativity is everywhere. And it comes up more often than you might think, especially if you are also living with your field team, as I do with my field team every summer. And so that we shouldn't be making assumptions about everyone's gender and sexuality. Uh, we should be creating environments where everyone uh, feels safe to be themselves should they choose to. Uh, and um, combating that erasure means talking about it. Uh, and so that's some, one reason why Nathan and I wrote this paper is we wanted to kind of uh, hit back against some of that erasure and invisibility that happens in a lot of scientific environments. Yeah. So then how, you know, how can having these potentially negative experiences in the field affect a young or early career ecologists um, career trajectory or um, you know whether or not they even choose to stay in this field and I don't know if either of you feel um, comfortable or at liberty sharing any specific stories or examples to help uh, highlight this for us. I mean both Jamie and I stayed in the field. I have heard stories of people leaving the field or experiencing negative interactions to the point where they change how they approach field work. Um, one memory or one instance coming up to my mind is a person doing work in a rural area and being threatened. Um, definitely in my younger years when I was doing some of this work and like one of my field, first field jobs was working with scat detection dogs down in Belize prior to their inclusion of LGBTQ rights where it was still illegal to be um, a gay man. And 
Well, within my ability, I was able to identify how to exist in that situation um, without any ire or hardship. There is this constant question of, am I going to be protected when I do this work? And especially as we're seeing within the United States and within the UK, increased legislation that is prohibiting access to gender-affirming care, prohibiting um, LGBTQ rights in general, there's going to be more of these hardships where we are having to decide, are we comfortable sacrificing our rights to work in this environment? And if we're not, or if we can't be, then we're inevitably going to lose people from the field. That would be excellent contributions. And uh, so for me, one thing that I like to look to is research and literature on this, uh, which helps me contextualize personal experiences. And there's a really um, growing area of literature that shows that one negative experience in field work or in lab work uh, can cause students to leave the field of ecology. And if we have unwelcoming environments, you have to really find ways to survive that can have detrimental impacts on mental health and on physical health as well. And you can find community, there are strategies to get through, but no one should have to go through that. And so I really am concerned about these negative fieldwork experiences that queer and trans students are having out there that I have never probably even heard of, but are excluding folks from the field. Some of my students have had negative experiences. Um, and one thing that I noticed is that having someone that they can come talk to and community can help folks be resilient to some of those stressors. Um, but those feelings of isolation, of loneliness, lack of community can really take a toll and can serve to exclude folks from the field. So I think with all of that, you know, I think we can all understand, and especially thinking back to our interview with Kate um, about why we want increased diversity and what that can do for conservation, for ecology, for us as organizations. Um, maybe one of the other things that I think is really easy to miss if you have not had the lived experience of being a queer person are some of the social and cultural barriers that negatively impact um, LGBTQ folks. So, um, you know, maybe if we can go through a quick rundown and highlighting any that may be particularly relevant to ecology, that would be another good place to go. So one of the, a lot of the issues that LGBTQ people face in the field include structures around safety and accountability. So with a lot of, um, field procedures and safety plans, there needs to be exp explicit accounting for LGBTQ inclusion within these, um, where particularly some of the tangible items that, or obstacles that LGBTQ people can face is housing, where often in field work you have uh, a default of gender segregated housing. Uh, however, individuals should be allowed to choose their sleeping arrangements and um, kind of the the go-to of the gender-segregated housing is not particularly an effective way for inclusion. Bathroom access is a common one as well, especially as we're seeing increased um, anti-trans legislature. However, bathroom stops and how people can use the restroom while doing field work should be incorporated where it should be very evident to people 
doing the field work that there will be bathroom access at these locations. If not, here's how you can use the restroom in the field. Um, one of my projects, we were working in rural Illinois. And even for that, uh, I and one of the other co-authors would kind of have a buddy system where if they were using the restroom, I would kind of make sure nobody else was entering it. Um, and then one of the common things, and this is just a general note, but uh, a lot of field work is very hierarchical in power dynamics where there's a crew lead and then there's a PI and that creates an individual where, um, you know, they have access to the staff and the technicians, they have access to the reporting and they have access to essentially kind of managing the field site. And this can create issues if that person doing all of that management winds up being problematic. And so we recommend more of a diffuse uh, crew lead structure where you can have co-crew leads. I've been a co-crew lead before. And you have people who manage different aspects of safety where the person with the spot or with the radio to contact outside of the field site is different than the person with like the truck keys or things like that. When I think about sociocultural barriers, uh, one of the main ones is cis heteronormativity and how that can influence safety in the field um, is that if you diverge in any way from cis heteronormative expectations, you're at a higher risk for uh, victimization and harassment in the field. And a lot of literature has shown that to be true for LGBTQ folks in fieldwork. So it's really important that you have a robust safety plan, as Nathan measured, and that mentioned, and you should be proactive in your safety plans. So not waiting for issues to come up, but rather planning as much as you can in advance to make your team inclusive and safe. We recommend radio contact, working in pairs, being aware of hate symbols around you as a queer person, uh, as all queer people are very aware when you see a Confederate flag or some other symbology, maybe related to Nazis, you are in a less safe environment. And so having a plan for what you do in uh, places where you might be less safe, where there's hate sim symbols, um, making sure you can stay in contact working in pairs, and having a really clearly defined safety plan so that you can figure out what to do in advance. And queer people on a team don't have to invent all the solutions for themselves. And into that plan should also go options for housing and bathrooms, um, as well as thinking about storage of medication. And that way, if you provide those plans in advance to your team, uh, everyone can review it and can identify whether there are any gaps for accessibility. And this is good for queer folks, people of color, people with disabilities. So these sort of things aren't just for LGBTQ folks, they just make an overall safer team environment in the field. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that often strikes me when I'm reading papers like this one or you know, other suggestions is reading through this and thinking, gosh, these are all just such good ideas for so many reasons. Um, and I know 
it's one of the things that we've struggled with kind of organizationally here at Canine Conservationists is because we're often in like a subcontractor model. Sometimes we're not being provided with these things or we ask for them uh, and they don't exist yet on organizational levels. And we, it can be really challenging when you feel like you don't necessarily have the power to uh, have something like this created for you. Um, this podcast is brought to you by our Patreon group. For as little as $3 a month, you get to ask questions for upcoming episodes, and you also get access to our online student alumni Facebook group. At $10 a month, you can join monthly coaching calls and book club calls. At $25 a month, you can submit video of you and your dog for kind, thoughtful discussion and feedback during each of those calls. And finally, at $50 a month, you get private coaching calls with me at each month. We also have exclusive merch for loyal patrons and occasional workshops, webinars, and other secret goodies for the group. We appreciate your support. So maybe with that, we can pivot a little bit into, we've already been talking a little bit about some of the things that can be done to help support um, LGBTQ folks in the field. But why don't we start out kind of going through some of the institutional fieldwork policies that either we haven't talked about yet or we want to revisit and expand upon. um, And then we'll move through uh, fieldwork and uh, scientist recommendations as well. Yeah, I think that one of the things that really... One of the things that I think that should also be emphasized from kind of a structural stance is that there should be inclusion of when it's okay for a field technician to leave a site. Um, As Jamie was talking about hate symbols uh, being present on sites or there's a real issue of safety in order to get the data. Um, It's important for the managers or the crew leads to prioritize the technicians and the workers over the data. And I remember being on a few crews where the data was the most important thing, whatever you had to do to get the data, you should. However, having now been on the backside and published a few data papers and done research, it's real easy to account for missing data and nobody should be at risk for that. Um, that's 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 probably the main thing that I think that I would want to re-highlight. Another thing to highlight about ways that institutions can help uh, in situations like this, in addition to the things we've already mentioned, is financial and paperwork support. So when we think about LGBTQ folks, what a lot of people don't realize is there are a lot of societal barriers um, that are causing um, uh, barriers to LGBTQ people in field ecology before you even get to school. So there's increased family disownment, homelessness, there might be limited access to medical care. All of this can make it more difficult to get into the field of ecology, which often includes unpaid internships. Um, So one thing that institutions can do is provide financial support, allow grant funding to be used to purchase field equipment, um, have scholarships available. In addition, there may be complications, especially with international travel, but often with domestic travel relating to documents and prescription transfer. I know for me, I have a prescription that needs to be transferred every summer and the local pharmacy makes this very difficult. If someone is on some sort of hormone therapy, uh, making sure you have a plan to get that prescription transferred and institutional support for that can be very helpful. 
especially if your name does not match any of your documents, then having institutional support for travel internationally can be really helpful. Navigating that is a lot of work. Uh, and having someone whose expert expertise is there to help you do that is something that institutions can do to help reduce the impact of some of these structural barriers. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't, I, uh, I, I struggle to imagine exactly how big of a headache that must be. Um, you know, I've been doing a lot of overland border crossings lately and, you know, the paperwork for my vehicle is complicated enough even when everything does match up. Um, and I actually, this, uh, I was originally denied my visa to Kenya when we were, when we were going there to help out with the action for cheetahs and Kenya team, because I had, um, somehow swapped my first name and middle name, um, on one of my pieces of paperwork, um, for a visa. And I, I again, I, that must be so challenging. Are there any, um, are there any programs or resources or anything like that, that people can look at for grant funding or, um, where to actually get that sort of expertise? I have actually seen a few calls for scholarships or small grants from organizations that were specific to early career LGBTQ plus folks. So you really just need to keep an eye on uh, organizations. Like if you're involved, like I am with bird research, sometimes there are early career LGBTQ grants from um, ornithological societies. Um, but uh, I think that institutions should allow grant funding to be used to purchase um, equipment like boots, rain pants, whatever is useful for the fieldwork that you're in to generally reduce money as a barrier to fieldwork, which helps lots of different groups. Um, so that's something that institutions should allow um, and sometimes can be difficult to make that happen and mentors can advocate for that. But otherwise, keep an eye on organizations relevant to your field of study and organizations, you should start offering these types of scholarships. Yeah, I, I think I recently saw one through the Wildlife Society for field equipment um, or uh, field clothes that are appropriate. And trying to find these sources of funding can be difficult. Um, and our general recommendation is that this funding should be built into grant applications as like personnel costs, um, equipment expenditures, uh, hiring uh, finances. All of this can be itemized in different ways on grants. Um, but also for identifying the scholarships or the available funds through different societies, there's out in the field with the Wildlife Society, there's the Rainbow Lorikeets with the, um, I believe, American Ornithological Society. And there's a lot of these societies are starting to increase funds and inclusion for minoritized people and including LGBTQ people. Another great organization is the Trans and Gender Nonconforming Fieldwork Alliance. Um, so there's lots more organizations coming online and that can be a great place to exchange information and um, receive notes about various scholarships that are available. And hopefully these organizations can develop funding to be able to offer um, support to LGBTQ folks in the field. Yeah, well, and that's excellent. And we'll be sure to um, kind of draw those up and uh, drop the links into the show notes so anyone who's listening who is interested can 
have a place to go and check and you know look for due dates and what's required and what can be covered. Okay, so then on the institutional level, just looking at one of the graphics from your article then, we've got re require fieldwork safety and procedure plans, provide adequate and inclusive housing options, communicate and plan bathroom access, manage safety, provide financial and other resources, and then finally provide or create support in paperwork. So then if you're going down to more of the fieldwork supervisor support level, what are some of the things that as a potential supervisor um, or co-supervisor one can be doing to help promote safety and inclusion in the field? One of the main things is being actively participating in this and keeping up to date with the literature. So as these papers are coming out, um, I just saw one recently specifically for uh, trans and gender nonconforming people doing field work as well. Um, and there's some common throughs for all of these papers, but if you're staying abreast of the literature, it can help uh, inform how you are creating your safety plans. Um, and it's important to communicate those safety plans in a in an inclusive way to your field team. And there's a lot of ways to kind of indicate that you are open to inclusion and diversity as well that can help kind of build these systems of trust where if you have a technician who is concerned about coming forward, they can talk to you and um, confide in you if there is an issue or ask for clarification if something in the safety plan is not addressing their needs. Uh, another way to think about it as a mentor, uh, Nathan talked about uh, advocating for structural changes and being active in thinking about keeping yourself up to date. This information is out there. Um, we're not the only paper that is written about this. There are blog posts. So it's kind of the responsibility of the mentors to be looking into these things. Um, but we should think about things in a way that moves from individuals on up. So if you have an individual on your team that uses they, them pronouns, you should be using correct pronouns. That's kind of the base level everyone should be making sure. And as a mentor, you can make sure other people are using correct pronouns for individuals. But your advocacy absolutely should not stop there. Uh, my institution recently um, got trans-inclusive healthcare added to our healthcare plan. So this is something that's a structural change that increases accessibility of our institution to trans folks. And so we can use correct pronouns. We can also advocate for healthcare. Uh, these things should not be mutually exclusive and it's just the bare minimum to be using correct pronouns. Uh, another thing that we recommend for mentors, which is complicated, uh, is if mentors are belonging to the LGBTQ plus community, um, you might consider disclosing identities. It's a very personal decision uh, and it's related to privilege and safety, uh, but uh, increased visibility in supervisors can allow us to serve as role models and trainees may be more comfortable coming to discuss safety with someone who they know is LGBTQ+. I know both Nathan and myself uh, being more out in certain work environments has led a lot of folks coming to talk to us about any issues they were having or strategies that we might have to share. And even though it's a situation that is complicated, if you're safe to do so, there can be a lot of benefits for your students. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things that I was reading about in the paper that I think this was one of the sections where I felt I learned the most was also talking about cybersecurity. Um, so is there anything that we would like to touch on there? Um, because again, this was this was the part of that I think was newest for me. Yeah, I can talk about that. Um, 
And this is both a... This is a complex uh, section as well, because especially from a supervisor standpoint, standpoint, it's important to be aware of this, but also your crew is most likely adults. They can manage themselves and you don't want to overstep some of that. But with cybersecurity, um, this is particularly, we were particularly focusing on uh, dating apps, including apps like Grindr, Scruff, Tinder, where there's this location-based algorithm to connect you with people of uh, romantic or dating or friend interest. Um, and especially as field technicians are often in one area for three months, three to six months, and then they leave the area, those apps can be like really useful for identifying local community and local support structures and getting to meet new people. However, at the same time, you're in a new environment, uh, depending on the social climate or depending on the legislative climate, there are risks with using these apps as well. So, you know, one, one thing that we kind of emphasize is that it's important to have kind of an important check-in or know when uh, staff or technicians are leaving field sites and when to expect people back. Um, and later on in the paper, we do talk about uh, how to engage in these apps in a safe way for technicians. Um, and it's a balance between that, the issue of being isolated, not having community, um, feeling alone, and physical safety where there are instances where pe people or governments use these apps for entrapment um, or they use these apps maliciously. So it, it's, it's a hard conversation, but it's also how do we ensure people are making connections, people are being safe, and from a supervisor standpoint, how are you setting up your system to ensure that people can do what they want as an adult while still being safe on site and safe for work? Another aspect of uh, cybersecurity uh, could be social media. Increasingly, institutions are uh, using, at least for me, using uh, public-facing blogs, Twitter posts, uh, TikTok to promote the work we're doing, but not everyone may uh, be out to their friends and family back home, even if they're out on the field team. So it's really important to have consent and permission before posting about someone and making sure that you have their permission to put them out there as a part of the field team in any public facing social media presence. Yeah, definitely. And I know, you know, just talking about the dating app side, that reminds me a lot of you know, what I do as a young woman on dating apps at field sites, um, but understanding kind of the different level of risk and being aware that um, I think people might more instinctively want to do those things to help support maybe young women on their field teams, but understanding that, um, you know, visible identity is not necessarily the most important thing for thinking about these, um, these safety tactics and you still would want to be checking in with any other, uh, field members and yeah, figuring out how to balance privacy and, uh, letting someone be an adult while also, um, 
you know, planning for safety and uh, supporting that side of things as well. Um, all right, anything else on the fieldwork supervisor side? Uh, one thing that I do, and Nathan helped me put this together, is I have a document uh, that is called Fieldwork Inclusivity Resources that has links to all those organizations we talked about. I link to um, specific blog posts or papers about being trans and queer in the field. I link to resources about being a person of color in the field, to, about disability. Um, I have a section on menstruation in fieldwork. Uh, and what I do is I provide this document to everyone. We should, as you just said, we should not be making assumptions about who needs this information uh, because we may not know who's menstruating on our team. Uh, if I only approached people who I thought were women and provided menstruation information, then that is not going to be supporting um, all people on my field team necessarily. So I provide that document to everyone and make sure people know that I'm there to answer questions if they want, but not everyone is comfortable with that. So just having a resource you can provide for folks to read and providing it to everyone, regardless of what you perceive their identities to be, can be really helpful as well. Yeah. All right, so then to recap here, we've got, for fieldwork supervisors, get educated on LGBTQ plus inclusion in fieldwork. Two, be vocal in advocacy. Three, build trust and rapport. Four, be supportive of variable identity disclosure. Five, be aware of cybersecurity risks. And six, if um, you yourself are LGBTQ+, consider disclosing your identity. So kind of last up here before we get to talk um, about each of your kind of ecology side fieldwork would be the um, field scientist recommendations. So what are um, some recommendations put forward in this paper for, uh, for the scientists themselves? One of the things we really wanted to do with this paper, and it's something that we hadn't seen before, was we wanted to talk specifically to LGBTQ field ecologists or scientists. Um, you know, it's great to write a paper about these things should change from a structural and supervisor uh, standpoint, but it's also really important for us to be giving resources and support to LGBTQ people that might be starting off in the field or might be trying to figure out how to navigate uh, this field. And so a lot of the times, especially uh, within the recent years, there's been a lot of pressure to kind of disclose and that's going away a bit with um, some of the current legislation and political climate. But there was an era where there was kind of this if you're queer, you should be out, you should be proud, you should tell everyone. And uh, that creates a lot of personal pressure on a person if they are not feeling safe or affirmed in a space. And we kind of wanted to give permission for people to decide when and where and how they disclose their identities. It's their decision. And it they don't, it's not a requirement to be who you are. You don't have to be vocal about who you are. If you are LGBTQ, you're still LGBTQ if you're quiet about it. Um, we wanted people to prioritize their safety. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier about the, the data collection, if you're not feeling safe in an environment, communicate it and you can leave when you need to. Um, prioritize your own safety above data before uh, other perceived requirements of the job. Your safety is a priority. Um, and one of the ones that actually uh, people resonated a lot with was 
to bring something symbolic of your identity. And so I did this a lot when I was doing the fieldwork uh, circuit where I had this old battered copy of Picture of Dorian Gray that's still on my bookshelf held together by duct tape. But it was this connection to a queer author about a queer story. And even on the field jobs where I wasn't out, I had this kind of physical representation of this connection to my community and the ownership of I'm part of that community and you know, the community is still there, even if I am currently isolated and it's there waiting for me when I return from the field job. I've had a lot of students ever since we published this paper that have specifically mentioned that that one piece of advice that Nathan uh, put in the paper uh, really helped them when they were going out and doing their first field jobs. And so I think it may seem like a small thing, but uh, Nathan, after he mentioned it, I started thinking about what I've done in the past. And what I've been doing lately is I paint my nails when I'm in the field. It's not the most uh, practical thing necessarily, but there's something for me that I look at that that feels symbolic to me of my queer identity. And I can always just look down and remember that connection to both history and present queer community. And, you know, reminding that we've always been here, we will always be here despite any difficulties we might face. So we don't necessarily even mean like bringing a rainbow flag, although people can certainly do that if they feel safe, but a personal, a personal symbol. Something else uh, that we bring up in the paper is being safe from environmental and health safety risks. And one of the specific things to think about are binders. So a lot of folks wear uh, binders or compression uh, on their chests, and you have to be really careful in hot environments or during strenuous activities, making sure that you're binding safely. And it's something that maybe people uh, on their first field job may not realize. And so it's really like we can't make decisions for other people. That's important. But you need to make sure that you're not going to cause an adverse health impact in extreme weather. So you need to balance gender affirming garments uh, like binders with um, your safety in those environments. And the last thing that we kind of tend to recommend is specifically around sexual harassment and sexual assault reporting. Um, in a lot of these reporting mechanisms, you lose autonomy once you report and it triggers a system that you might lose control of. And so it's being aware of those systems and knowing what might happen if you disclose and being prepared for that if you are sexually harassed or assaulted and choose to disclose it. Um, this I, I was a resident assistant during my undergraduate and this was something that um, was very important for our students because as soon as they would inform one of us that they had been sexually assaulted, we would have to report it and would trigger this event that they no longer had any autonomy over. So uh, that's just something that people should consider and consider how to navigate that as well. One thing that Nathan has brought up with me in the past that I think is really astute is sometimes in these situations you're put in um, a context where you may need to out someone uh, in order to report. And that can put uh, the person who's reporting in a bind that just doesn't feel very comfortable. And we just prioritize folks to take care of themselves uh, and make sure that you're prioritizing your own safety. 
uh, is that you can never go wrong with prioritizing your own safety. Yeah, that sounds like an extraordinarily challenging situation. Um, and yeah, unfortunate on a lot of levels. I'm glad that you brought up as well, you know, the affirming and weather appropriate care in particular. You know, that wasn't one that I had part I had thought of or heard of before, you know, particularly when it comes to things like binders and thinking about just the the potential extreme weather that we're often exposed to in the field. Um, and I'm sure that's not the only affirming article of clothing that could be related to that. And maybe there are also um, situations where extreme cold could be a factor as well. So is there anything else on the um, field scientist side that we should touch on? I just and think it's really important. So we talk a lot about barriers, structural and sociocultural barriers and how we can overcome them. But one thing I want to highlight is also thinking about queer joy and queer joy in the field. Um, I always like I was talking with Nathan very recently about there's something about being out in the field that's very grounding for individuals uh, for who love field work. There's nothing more joyful for me than being out in the middle of a field searching for a bird nest and not having to worry about what other people think about my identity. And I'm just being myself. And we think that it's super important to make these amazing, life-changing, joyous um, jobs available to everybody and inclusive to LGBTQ folks, uh, because there's something really incredible about being in touch with who you are and being out in nature. And so highlighting the importance of queer joy and seeking queer joy in the field and making that available to everyone is something that we think is really important. Yeah, yeah, well, that's a great, um, great final reminder. And just uh, to, to recap for everyone for, um, again, and I'm basically reading this straight out of your paper um, where the graphics, you've got a nice little graphic going through all of these recommendations. So for the field scientists themselves, you, we've got one, it's okay to selectively disclose. Two, be safe from human risks, research and make a plan. Three, choose clothing that is both affirming and weather appropriate. Four, bring something symbolic of your identity to stay connected. Five, be cautious of safety risks when using online dating apps. Six, connect to local LGBTQ plus communities. Seven, engage with LGBTQ plus fieldwork organizations. And eight, be knowledge about reporting mechanisms. So unless there's anything else to circle back to within this paper, I think now I'd love to round out talking a little bit about, um, Nathan, you are finishing up your field, um, your PhD, and I would love to hear about you know, what landscape genetics are, what you're looking at. I think that's going to be really interesting to our conservation dog folks. And then Jamie telling us a little bit about um, your habitat restoration work and um, tell us more about these grasslands you're working on, but we'll start with Nathan. Sure. So uh, outside of all of the LGBTQ advocacy and things like that, I am a field ecologist. <laughs> um, so my master's was on landscape genetics of giant kangaroo rats out in California, where we were using uh, genetic samples from uh, small mammals trapped to determine what different landscapes uh, either impeded or assisted with their movement between populations. Um, I know that there have been scat dog uh, uh, or conservation dog uh, applications of this, especially in helping find scat where we can get DNA from and identify uh, genetic similarities between individuals. Um, my friend Alita has also done this with African elephants um, and taken uh, genetics from scat. So 
you know, it's sometimes a little less glamorous, but I imagine uh, it's work that your audience will be familiar with. Um, but yeah, it's really cool. Currently, I've also been doing species distribution modeling for gophers, looking at how their habitats have changed since the 1950s to now due to agricultural development and trying to figure out um, gene flow and population genetic structure of, of those guys. Ooh, very interesting. Um, are there any good places that people can go to learn more about um, either your work specifically within the landscape genetic world or um, just are there any organizations that tend to do a lot of that sort of work if people are interested in learning more? Yeah, a, a lot of the work for landscape genetics um, falls under the International Association of Landscape Ecology, uh, and I'm a member of the North American chapter. But um, there's actually a graduate course that happens every two years or so called the DGS course based out of University of Idaho, uh, which is a landscape genetics course. And it's a great rundown. It's online. It's virtual. And they have a lot of experts from all over the world. Excellent. So, Jamie, tell us a little bit about your work. Um, it sounds like a lot of time wandering around the prairie looking for bird nests, which sounds uh, like a lovely time. So what is what's some of the goal, uh, some of the goals of that research? Absolutely. So I've been doing this research since 2014 when I started my PhD and I have not been able to stop. I've continued on with the same research um, now that I have this assistant professor position and I get to bring my own students out into the field. We are looking at restoration of grasslands. I don't know if folks know this, but in North America, we've lost about 90% of our tall grass prairies to habitat loss, uh, mostly conversion to row crops. In some states like Illinois, 99% of tall grass prairies have been lost to row crops. Unfortunately for the grasslands that we have left, they're being degraded uh, by invasive species coming in and through overgrazing by cattle, which really reduces habitat quality for birds. And given that we're losing all this habitat and the habitat we have left has a lot of pressure on it, it's not surprising to know that grassland birds are the fastest declining avian group in North America. They are doing very, very poorly. Uh, there was a paper in 2019 that came out and said this group of birds is doing the worst of all birds in North America. And so in my research, we're really thinking about how can we help these grassland birds coexist with the land uses that exist, exist on the landscape. We've looked a lot at the impact of invasive species and invasive species removal on birds. We've uh, interviewed and surveyed landowners to learn about their attitudes towards birds and also their willingness to undertake habitat restoration. We have found through our research that um, restoration of native grasses and forbs benefits grassland birds in terms of both their abundance and their reproduction. And so there is a lot of promise to improve the habitat quality in the few grasslands we have left. Of course, we also need to be putting prairies back on the landscape. And uh, so it's really important to not lose the few grasslands we have left, but we also need to be restoring and adding them back. Uh, grassland birds are so adorable. Um, I love watching their behavior and tracking them to their nests. We film them at their nests to learn more about their provisioning behaviors and their other parental care behaviors. And um, we, I spend a lot of time just in the field watching birds. And many a times I have been out there looking for a nest and thinking, I bet a dog 
would be able to lead me right to this bird nest. And so I could see some really useful applications of conservation dogs in uh, research where you have these bird nests that are incredibly challenging to find. Um, and that would be awesome to experience. Yeah, I mean, I I hope so and I wish so, but I think there's actually been um, a little bit of looking into conservation dogs in particular with these ground nesting birds and so many of them seem to have such excellent olfactory camouflage that it is one of the areas that dogs seem to really, really struggle. Um, I've actually had it happen when I'm out on wind farms in, um, I've done quite a bit of work on a wind, uh, specific wind farm up in northeastern Nebraska that I have found the same bird nest uh, at the same turbine several weeks in a row or multiple t- uh, bird nests in a day and my dogs have shown absolutely no change of behavior or recognition um, even with pretty decent sized um, nestlings in in the nests um, and obviously my dogs aren't specifically trained for it but they do tend to show interest in uh, in living things when they find them um, because they are dogs um, so I mean it's one of those things that I mean let me know if you get some grant money and we want to explore it but it does seem like it's been uh, it's been challenging in the past for um, animals that are highly evolved to have olfactory camouflage in particular. Yeah, and these uh, these nests are so hard to find. We will take a GPS point of the nest, mark it with flagging, come back to the same spot, and still sometimes struggle to relocate them, even with all of that information. And I mean, we have a G- GPS uh a point that is accurate to the half meter. And so these are very difficult to find nests. I like a challenge um, and I like the high when you find a nest after you've been working really, really hard to find it. Uh, But it is like makes it a challenge to study these species. I mean, when you don't get high enough sample sizes, you can't draw any conclusions uh, as to how your restoration is impacting birds. Uh, But again, I like the challenge and maybe someday could explore looking for those nests with dogs. Well, yeah, thank you so much for all of that, Jamie. That sounds like really interesting work. And um, I hope that, you know, even if it's not you and me together someday, someone um, can can do a little bit more of investigation um, into how useful dogs may or may not be for this sort of project. Because, you know, the other reality is for this sort of thing, as you've described, when all sorts of detection are so incredibly challenging, sometimes even if dogs aren't um, incredibly uh, impressive with their results, if they're able to find a couple nests that you all would have missed, that may still be good enough. Um, Nice little final note to end on there. Um, Would both of you mind letting our listeners know where they can learn more about your work, follow you on social media, anything like that, and um, then we'll we'll let people go. Sure. So... If you are interested in gophers and other information uh, pertaining to LGBTQ inclusion and field ecology, you can follow me on Twitter at smammal underscore bio. Um, And that's kind of the only place I have currently. For me, you can find me on Twitter at Jamie J. Kuhn, uh, but I'm also on ResearchGate, and I've been preferring ResearchGate lately to Twitter, so that's a good place to find updates. Um, if you want to learn more about awesome bird research, I forgot to mention this earlier, you can also check out the American Ornithological Society, and they are, in my experience, a very queer-affirming organization, so that's a good one to get involved in.
All right. Well, and for everyone at home, uh, you already know this, but you can find Canine Conservationists, find our transcripts, our show notes, all of the links we mentioned. Um, you can sign up for our Patreon, and you can sign up for our complete online conservation detection dog course, all at canineconservationists.org. We'll be back in your earbuds next week. Bye.